0: This is a recording of Unavailable Genetic Evidence, Multiple Simultaneous Promised Lands, and Lamanites by Location, Possible Ramifications of the Book of Mormon Limited Geography Theory, published by Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Brian C. Hales. Unavailable Genetic Evidence, Multiple Simultaneous Promised Lands, and Lamanites by Location, Possible Ramifications of the Book of Mormon, Limited Geography Theory, by Brian C. Hales, Abstract. This paper is composed of three parts, connected consecutively, because their conclusions build upon one another. The first part investigates the transportation methods used in the Book of Mormon, concluding that horse and river travel contributed little, and that foot travel dominated all journeying. The second part uses that conclusion to estimate the overall dimensions of the promised land by examining Alma, the elder's, journey from Nephi to Zarahemla. This exercise reaffirms the 200 by 500 mile size promoted by John L. Sorensen decades ago. The third part looks at four ramifications of this 100,000 square mile promised land footprint. When stamped upon a map of the Western Hemisphere, one, it allows for more than one promised land, occupied by other God led immigrants, to exist simultaneously in the Americas. Two, it predicts that no matter where the Book of Mormon promised land was originally located, most Native Americans today would have few or no direct ties to the Jaredite, Lehites, Mulekites. Three, It demonstrates that research efforts to identify evidence of the Book of Mormon peoples could be exploring locations thousands of miles away from their original settlements. And four, if any of the post-400 CE localized population losses in the Americas due to disease, war, or unknown causes involved the original promised land location, then the primary locus of organic evidence of the existence of the Jaredite, Lehiite, Mulekite populations might have been largely destroyed. For almost 200 years, scholars have discussed three important geographical questions regarding the Book of Mormon promised land. The first question, where is the original location, is still sometimes hotly debated. This article will not address this issue directly. The second were indigenous populations present or absent on the arrival of Jaredites, Lehites, and Mulekites, the empty continent versus inhabited continent theories, has been largely resolved for most researchers who acknowledge multiple Book of Mormon textual references that demonstrate the existence of pre-existing populations. Similarly, the third question... What does the Book of Mormon portray as a geographic size of the Promised Land, which is the hemispheric versus limited geography theories, has been settled in favor of a limited geography as observers discard the idea that the Book of Mormon peoples inhabited the entire Western Hemisphere. A fourth question, perhaps one that will remain controversial, asks... What does the narrative say about the general dimensions of the limited geography? The first two parts of this paper focus on this question. Part 1 examines Book of Mormon transportation methods by addressing references to horses in the text, as well as theories that river travel may have predominated. After concluding that foot travel prevailed, Part 2 analyzes transit speeds for Alma the Elder's journey from Nephi, to Zarahemla to estimate that distance and then approximate the overall dimensions of the promised land. These results reaffirm John L. Sorensen's geographic size of about 200 by 500 miles. Part 3 investigates several of the ramifications of a 100,000 square mile promised land when that footprint is stamped on a map of North and South America. Part 1. Book of Mormon Transportation. The Book of Mormon contains hundreds of references to locations and journeys between those locations. It often states or implies relative travel times of a few days to a few weeks. No distances in the Promised Land require months or years to traverse. Estimating those distances demands an understanding of the transportation methods that were used. While modern overland transportation did not exist, foot traffic, water navigation, animal-drawn vehicles, and riding on mammals like horses were all possibilities. Horses in the Book of Mormon Undoubtedly, the most famous animal mentioned in the Book of Mormon is the horse, but not due to its indispensable contributions to societies in the Unfolding Saga. Instead, critics usually list it as their leading supposed anachronism and as primary evidence against the Book of Mormon's historicity. For example, in his conclusion of An Imperfect Book, What the Book of Mormon Tells Us About Itself, Earl Wonderly wrote in 2013, "...throughout my study of the Book of Mormon, I have been surprised by the anachronisms that others before me have identified, including horses." Such critiques consistently reflect presentism by assuming that horses in the Book of Mormon were equus cabalus, the common horse found throughout the world today. Horse and non-horse nations. Historical records predictably show that the presence or absence of equus cabalus affects the expansion of growing nations. In the history of humankind, there has never been an animal that has made a greater impact on societies than the horse, explains horse historian Sandra Olson. Other animals were hunted more or domesticated earlier, but the horse changed the world in innumerable ways with its tremendous swiftness. While asses, camels, elephants, yaks, and other animals were ridden by people, the horse provided the first source of rapid transit, Anne Norton Green, explains other important reasons. Horses are one of only 14 large, over 100 pounds, domesticated animals in the world, the others being camels, yamas, alpacas, reindeer, yak, asses, donkeys, pigs, sheep, goats, and several kinds of cattle, including water buffalo. Only three of these, horses, donkeys, and cattle, are used worldwide. All of them share the same set of characteristics. All of them are large enough to be useful for work or food, but not too large to control. None are carnivores that might view humans as lunch. All are herd animals with stable social dispositions accustomed to living in hierarchical social groups and fitting comfortably into the hierarchy of human society. They breed easily in captivity and have gestation periods of less than a year. They have nicely balanced flight, fight-flight instincts, neither too aggressive nor confrontational, nor flighty and inclined to panic and stampede. In 2009, Peta Kolekna published The Horse in Human History where she spends most of her final chapter contrasting societies that evolve with and without Equus Caballus, outlining specific differences in areas of agriculture, metallurgy, trade, dissemination of ideas and inventions, warfare, religion, language distribution, and colonial expansion. She observes... It is almost as if there existed on the planet two experiments in human civilization, one horsed and the other horseless. Her observations are summarized in Table 1. Horse nations on agriculture. Horses were used for harrowing, plowing, planting, harvesting, and hauling, equine, could easily transport the heavy plow to the fields in outlying areas not previously cultivated due to the distances. The main asset was versatility. In non-horse nations, without domesticated work animals, sustaining large-scale agricultural projects across flatlands remained difficult. Most prairie lands remained agriculturally undeveloped and largely uninhabited. Mountain terraces with irrigation projects were typical. Metallurgy for horse nations. Horsepower allowed more distant mineral deposits to be surveyed and prospected. Equine increased the ease of moving metals and disseminating new metalworking techniques. Heavy coins could be easily transported. In non-horse nations, metallurgy was invented independently in centers isolated by just a few hundred miles. Little or no industrial communication and interstimulation existed between centers. All minerals were moved by human transport. Trade for horse nations. Horse-drawn vehicles were standard. Equus is unparalleled in the animal kingdom over long distances for speed, strength, and stamina. Rulers embarked on ambitious programs of road construction over thousands of kilometers to promote trade and establish dominance across many regions. In non-horse nations, commodities were traded in small loads on foot by human porters who averaged only 51 pounds per day over a distance of 13 to 17 miles. Without rapid high-volume overland trade capacity, there was no great stimulus for diverse maritime transport. The Dissemination of Ideas and Inventions in Horse Nations Horse-drawn and horse-mounted messengers facilitated the conveyance of technologies like writing, mathematics, science, art, and calendaring. A society could share and exploit discoveries in distant regions more quickly through equine-enabled communications. In non-horse nations, diffuse, diffusion of ideas and inventions when it did occur occurred less effectively, requiring more time. Commercial, religious, and entertainment centers were religious re, regionally regionally delimited. Warfare in horse nations, lightweight horse-drawn chariots designed for speed accompanied by horse-borne riders allowed equestrian armies to advance up to 62 miles a day. Armed equestrians and cavalry units quickly overwhelmed infantry. An experienced horse-mounted archer could shoot arrows from either side of the horse at full gallop. Riders could scout greater distances to learn of opposing forces and to identify suitable camping areas for large armies. In non-horse nations, foot armies could transport supplies for about an eight-day round trip. While arrows, spears, and stones lengthened the warriors' effectiveness, battle efforts depended on human strength to transport and engage in combat. Horse nations and religion, the world's most populous religions, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, emerged between 2000 BCE and 1000 CE, when equestrian empires were forged, when horse spread religions today are represented on every continent in temples, churches, and mosques. In non-horse nations, Great ceremonial temples were centers of sacred pilgrimage and were regionally delimited. Religious diffusion remained restricted by topographical distances. Language distribution in horse nations. Horses enabled the evolution of large linguistic graphic blocks. With the help of horse transportation, Spanish, Portuguese, and English became the dominant languages across the Americas after the Europeans with their horses arrived in 1500 C.E. Although geographic isolation did not always involve great distances in non-horse nations, adjacent regional languages could evolve into highly contrasting vernaculars despite a common origin. Colonial expansion in horse nations, horses consistently represent ancient symbols of wealth, physical power, and social mastery, a marker of upward mobility and social status. Potent symbols of military might, cavalry, and artillery horses were vital in all programs of imperial expansion, including those with advanced maritime capabilities. The use of the horse at least doubled the geographic range of patrols and at least quadrupling the area of potential dominance. In non-horse nations, travel speed for foot soldiers, guards, and messengers diminished the ability of the sovereign to exercise direct control over an extensive territory. Expanding that dominion demanded increased decentralization of political structure with the potential for destabilizing remote rebellions. The Book of Mormon describes non horse nations. Kalletna's findings can be applied to Book of Mormon civilizations to discern what Jaredites, Nephites, or Mulekites evolved with or without the services of Equus Caballus, that is, her research can classify Book of Mormon peoples as horse nations or non-horse nations, based on historical descriptions of the same topics she identified. In agriculture, more than 60 passages refer to agriculture in the Book of Mormon, but none mention the horse contributing. The Jaredites may have used a beast to pull a plow-like tool, and they did make all manner of tools to till the earth, both to plow and to sow, to reap and to hoe, and also to thrash, and they did all make all manner of tools with which they did work their beasts. Ether 10, 25, and 26. To till the land or ground is also repeatedly referenced, but none of the verses specifically describe a horse pulling a plow. Transportation. Transportation in the Book of Mormon never explicitly involves horses. Author Orson Scott Card observes, in the Book of Mormon, nobody rides anywhere. People in Joseph Smith's day rode everywhere. They could on either a horse or in a wagon. Likewise, for moving materials or products, there is no question that the basic means of transporting goods in Mesoamerica has always been the human back, notes John L. Sorensen. No phrasing anywhere in the record indicates land transport other than on the backs of humans. This appears to apply to transportation throughout North America during the Book of Mormon period. While Yamas transported goods in the areas of South America for centuries, they were too small to routinely transport adults. Chariots The Book of Mormon contains six references that associate horses with chariots, but one of them is mentioned only in part of a quoted Bible passage. The Lamanite King Lamoni has horses and chariots and is later described as journeying, but whether it was on foot, by horse or by chariot is not specified. Chariots with wheels are not described in the Book of Mormon. Wheeled effigies have been identified in the Americas, but as John L. Sorensen explains, scholars have long operated on the assumption that the wheel was unknown in ancient American technology. The Book of Mormon implicitly agrees. So, assuming Lamona's chariots had wheels may not be justified. One definition for chariot in the Oxford Dictionary specifies a stately vehicle for conveyance of people, and vehicle is defined as a receptacle in which anything is placed in order to be moved. Wheels would assist in moving, but they are not implicit in the definitions. Traveling distances. The distances described in the Book of Mormon are always defined according to foot travel speeds. This account and all other accounts describing journeying in the Book of Mormon failed to mention horses, wagons, carriages, or coaches, which would have vastly improved travel speeds and efficiency. Slow communication. The slowness of communications in the Promised Land is consistent with foot travel, rather than the more rapid rapid transmission of information via horse travel. This is demonstrated as Alma's address, as Alma addresses the awful dilemma of our brethren were in at Zarahemla. He immediately declares repentance and puts the church in order there. Then, when Alma had made these regulations, he departed from them, yea, from the church which was in the city of Zarahemla, and went over upon the east of the river Sidon into the valley of Gideon, there having been built a city which was called the city of Gideon. The journey does not seem far. The river Sidon was close to Zarahemla and the valley on the other side of the river. Whether it is 10 miles, 20, or or even 30, it seems a short distance. Alma discovers that the inhabitants of Gideon were not in a state of so much unbelief as their brethren. Consequently, he reports, I shall have joy over you. Although separated by a relatively short geographic distance, the perversions of Zarahemla residents had apparently not traveled to the city of Gideon. Warfare The Book of Mormon references 85 instances of armed conflict. Many of the accounts contain detailed descriptions of operations, strategy, and military tactics. William J. Hamblin has identified many of the intricacies of war discussed in the Book of Mormon. Despite these types of described war details in numerous battles, no animal is ever mentioned as being used for military purposes. Animals did not play a significant role in Book of Mormon warfare, either in battle or for transportation of war supplies. Horse meat. Another possible benefit of horses involves horse meat. Horses almost certainly were the first domesticated for the use of food, animals like cattle or pigs, writes Sandra Olson. Historically, many civilizations have included horsemeat in their diets, but not in recent millennia. In temperate Eurasia, horse meat was highly regarded, and these tastes can be traced back a very long way. During the last Great Ice Age, horse meat was a staple in the diet of Homo sapiens. It has now become clear how widespread and how long-lasting was the dependence on horse meat. Four verses in the Book of Mormon place horses with animals that might be used for food. The preceding discussion identified many characteristics of nations possessing equus cabalus when compared to those that have progressed without it. From these observations, it appears that the horses mentioned in the Book of Mormon behaved and were treated different from equus cabalus. Collectness research supports that the civilizations of the Jaredites, Nephites, and Mulekites were non-horse nations, despite a few references to horses within their narratives. Other evidence could be supportive. For example, Mesoamerica incorporated all of the all sorts of animals into their art and iconography. Jaguar, turtle, and snake, but the horse is not usually included. Figures in art occasionally picture humans riding on animals, usually deer. It is also true that equus fossil remains have been found, and many date to Book of Mormon times. However, current paleontology Paleontological evidence does not support the wide use of Equus caballus in the Americas before the arrival of the Europeans, circa 1600 CE. What could explain the Book of Mormon references to horses that apparently did not behave like Equus caballus? Several explanations are possible. Perhaps those horses represented an inexact translation of a different animal with some horse characteristics. Ironically, the much-maligned taper, which has been suggested as a possible Book of Mormon horse, is taxonomically related to Equus Caballus, being of the Ceredactyla order. Historically, the taper has been domesticated, but apparently not tamed, raising questions about whether it could be the Book of Mormon horse. A second possibility is that Equus Caballus was present, but proliferated poorly and disappeared sometime after Christ's visit. A third explanation is that wild horses existed but were not widely domesticized to perform duties universally applied to horses in other civilizations, like transportation and warfare. This seems less likely because throughout history societies consistently exploit their value in transportation and warfare when they were available. In summary, although the horses mentioned in the Book of Mormon, multiple observations support that it was not equus caballus, not an anachronism, did not contribute in any meaningful way to the transportation needs of the Promised Land populations, and most importantly, would not have facilitated the expansion of Book of Mormon territories as it had affected civilizations in the Old World. A River Travel Theory a relatively new theory promotes river travel in the predominant transportation method used by Book of peoples. It also assumes that watercraft on rivers could move people and supplies faster than on foot. Such assumptions portray river travel as providing the same advantages as horse travel, but without the need of equus caballus. By facilitating rapid communication and interchanges between far-distant cities and lands, river travel ostensibly... Expanded the perimeter of the promised land well beyond the 100,000 square miles predicted by foot travel estimates. Jonathan Neville, a primary proponent of this theory, reports Ancient people always traveled on rivers, and you can travel a lot farther on a river than you can through a jungle. This theory posits that the people in Nephi's group would have been familiar with boats, yachts, canoes, and barges. As Neville explains, people can travel faster by boat than by land. By boat, they can travel faster downstream than upstream. According to this hypothesis, the Book of Mormon peoples preferentially chose faster river travel to foot travel throughout the Promised Land for hundreds of years. By actively using watercraft on rivers, the Nephites and Lamanites increased the geographic footprint of the Promised Land perhaps tenfold beyond the territorial boundaries projected by a non-horse civilization's foot traffic. Challenges to the River Travel Theory Undoubtedly, the Book of Mormon populations employed some river travel, as John L. Sorensen explains, where a network of waterways allowed fleets of canoes swarmed, carrying all kinds of goods as well as people. Most were simple dugouts that went only a short distance before the load was removed to another vessel. Yet, several observations support that watercraft did not significantly affect Book of Mormon travel. An obvious challenge is that rivers do not always go in the direction desired. Joseph Smith lived in a heavily rivered environment, but when his family moved from Sharon, Vermont to New York, they went by wagon and foot. When Joseph and his family traveled to Harmony, Pennsylvania, they went by buckboard. Their trips to find a printer in Rochester involved horseback and foot travel. Even with many rivers in the area, waterway excursions were less common because downstream currents did not arrive at the desired destination. Similarly, as Saints crisscrossed the eastern United States from western New York and the Hill Cumorah to arrive in Nauvoo, Illinois on the Mississippi River, some river travel supplemented the primary migration efforts which were by horse, wagon, or on foot. A second problem is the existence of fall lines, where an upland region meets a lower geographical plane, creating elevation drops that produce waterfalls of varying heights. Even small drops could impede river travel in both directions. If blindly encountered while moving downstream, waterfalls could destroy watercraft and threaten the lives of travelers. To circumvent such obstacles, small rivercraft and their supplies needed to be transported by land around the falls. Larger riverboats require the construction of locks. The third challenge, poss- possibly the most important of all, involves the unalterable directionality of river travel. Going downstream is usually less arduous, so long as river is navigable without obstruction from sandbars, rocks, debris, waterfalls, and other obstacles. In contrast, continuous traveling up river depending upon the flow and breadth of the current, is almost always more difficult than simply walking along a parallel trail or roadway. The advent of the steamboat in the early 19th century permitted captains to navigate larger waterways easily in either direction, but before their implementation, upstream travel often required immense human or animal energy. Drawings from pre-steam engine publications illustrate the four primary methods for moving a boat upstream. The most desirable involves setting sails and letting the wind move the boat forward into the current. This requires a cooperative wind direction and a relatively straight river. Amos Stoddard in his 1812 book Sketches, Historical and Descriptive of Louisiana, describes some of the limits of sailing up the Mississippi. Such is the rapidity of the current, in the Mississippi that no craft will be able to ascend it above Natchez, Mississippi, by means of sails alone. Most of our boats make use of sails when the wind is favorable, but this is merely occasional. Owing to the zigzag course of the river, the wind is seldom favorable. Natchez is about 200 miles north of the Gulf of Mexico, nearly 600 miles south of St. Louis and roughly 750 Miles south of Nauvoo. If the challenges of Mississippi River travel in 1812 reflect those of previous centuries, ships destined for St. Louis could have sailed only about a third of the distance. Beyond that point, stronger propulsion methods would have been required. A second approach, called poling, involves moving upstream by planting a pole in the river bottom along the boat and pushing forward into the current. In an 1810 book, Christian Schultz details how boatmen use their strength and long poles to impel the book forward. It is not often, however, that a fair wind will serve for more than three or four miles together, as the irregular course of the river renders its aid very precarious. Their chief dependence, therefore, is upon their pike poles, These are generally from 18 to 22 feet in length having a sharp point iron with a socket weighing 10 to 12 pounds affixed to the lower end. The upper has a large knob called a button mounted upon it so the pullman may press upon it with his full weight without endangering his person. This manner of impelling the book forward is extremely laborious and none but those who have Been for some time accustomed to it, can manage these poles with any kind of advantage. Within the boat on each side is a fixed plank running fore and aft with a number of cross-elect nails nailed upon it for the purpose of giving the pullman a sure footing in hard pulling. The men, after setting their poles against a rock, bank, or bottom of the river, declining their heads very low, placing the upper end or button against the back part of their right or left shoulders, according to the side on which they may be pulling, then falling down on their hands and toes, creep the whole length of the gang boards and send the boat forward with considerable speed. The third method involves attaching a rope to the boat and pulling it forward by animals or men who walk in shallow water or along the shoreline. Sometimes vegetative overgrowth or steep riverbank walls make this nearly impossible. Well-traveled waterways with sections of rapids could be traversed by hiring ox teams and their handlers along the shore to pull the ropes. A fourth technique employs oars and rowing to propel the boat upstream at a rate faster than the downstream current. For slow-moving boats, this may not be difficult. For slow-moving rivers, this may not be difficult, but as Ben Bachman, author of Upstream, A Voyage on the Connecticut River, reports, there are pitches of current that can easily defeat paddlers far stronger than I. A technique reserved for wider rivers involves crossing at an angle to zigzag up the stream against the current, Cutting across the downflowing stream is necessary because rowers cannot generate enough speed to counter the rapid currents by heading into them directly and simultaneously driving the craft upstream. Rowing upstream on the Mississippi River A 1796 publication commented on the difficulty of going up the Mississippi River. In navigating that river, we often find places like the Horseshoe, where we do not gain more than a mile by sailing or rowing five miles. Amos Stoddard agreed. The river is so winding that the daily progress of boats to their destination is very inconsiderable. In one instance, they were obliged to stem the current for 54 miles to gain five, in another 30 miles to gain one and a half. Stoddard further explains... Keel boats, however strongly manned, cannot possibly ascend to any great di- di- any great distance in the middle of the current. In some places, indeed, they cannot make head against it. They are obliged not only to ply along the shore where the water is less rapid and where counter-currents or eddies frequently prevail, but they also find it necessary to keep on the side opposite to the bends. Hence, they cross the river at the low extremity of the bend, which can seldom be done without falling down with a current about half a mile. It is said by old boatmen that they are obliged to cross the Mississippi 390 times on ascending from New Orleans to St. Louis. Stoddard noted that one of our gunboats was about 18 months in ascending from Natchez, Mississippi to the Ohio River, a distance of over 350 miles. The Ohio joins the Mississippi River about 60 miles downstream from St. Louis. Lewis and Clark. A classic example of river transportation is the Lewis and Clark Expedition that traveled 10,624 miles, 9,046 miles of it by river, during a period of more than three years. 44 men and one woman, translator Sacagawea. Boarded the keelboat and several smaller watercraft at St. Louis to ascend the Mississippi, the Missouri River, historian Vern Huser describes their primary vessel. The keel boat was 55 feet long and 8 feet wide. It was equipped with four means of propulsion, a large square sail for sailing, 22 oars and foal pins to row by, a supply of push poles for pulling or pushing, and several ropes for towing. It could be sailed when the wind was right, rowed by a large crew of strong men, pulled by a coordinated team, or towed by oxen, horses, or men. Traveling upstream against a four or five mile an hour current is hard work, whatever method is used. Each of the four means of propulsion requires significant human strength to implement. Huser further declared, The crew members often served as beasts of burden traveling down the Ohio on low water. They literally had to lift the boat over shoals on numerous occasions. Huser concludes, even though rivers were highways in the days of Lewis and Clark, they were often undependable. The Book of Mormon describes no river travel. The Book of Mormon references to rivers and transportation methods represents another challenge to the theory that river travel was common or popular among the Jaredites, Lehites, and Mulekites. The words river or rivers are referenced 47 times in the Book of Mormon, but riverboats or river migrations are never mentioned. Jonathan Neville explains that this is because the prophet scribe Mormon states that he could not write a hundredth part of their shipping and their building of ships. A ship is by definition a large sea-going vessel, as opposed to a boat. The only ships mentioned in the Book of Mormon are those traveling by sea, not in rivers. Nephi builds a ship large enough to carry the Lehiites to the promised land, and Hagoth built ships that were launched into the West Sea. Another problem is that the verbs commonly used in the Book of Mormon to describe human transit are often limited to foot travel march is used 82 times wander 17 drive 99 flee 68 pursue 42 and scattered 73 in contrast words that might describe water travel between cities in the promised land like float glide row waft sail cruise voyage or paddle are absent neither are additional references found to rivers river craft design construction, usage, and benefits, especially in war times. Attributing attributing such silences to a declaration by Mormon that shipping was not going to be mentioned seems inadequate. In addition, the Book of Mormon describes 149 distinct geographic locations that are referenced 670 times. Only 11 are described as being near a river. If river travel in the Book of Mormon were important enough to significantly expand the dimensions of the promised land, perhaps ten times or more, readers must accept several assumptions. First, most cities were located near rivers that the text more than the text describes. Second, a crucial boating and travel industry existed that the text treats with complete silence. Third, river commuters developed effective upstream travel techniques, all of which demanded significant time and human energy to consistently convince travelers to abandon walking along trails parallel to the river. And fourth, that transportation between cities not connected by a river also was expedited through an undescribed process to be more rapid than foot travel. Reviewers unwilling to accept these assumptions will likely conclude that river travel did not enable Book of Mormon travelers to journey at speeds faster Fast enough to greatly expand the promised land's geographic boundaries. Part two Estimating the Size of the Promised Land. Accepting that foot travel was essentially the only form of transportation in the Book of Mormon allows the estimation of distances by using descriptions of transit times. For example, it was only the distance of a day and a half's journey for a Nephite on the lion lying bountiful and the land desolation from the east to the west sea. While the exact mileage a Nephite could travel by foot in a day and a half is not known, a range of possible distances can be accepted. In contrast, the distances a horse rider or a boat moving downstream could travel for a day and a half would be much greater, but these do not apply to the promised land. Fortunately, The Book of Mormon describes the number of days needed to travel between two major metropolitan centers, the city of Nephi located at the southern end and the land of Zarahemla located close to the center of the promised land. The distance between the cities of Nephi and Zarahemla. The Book of Mosiah describes the number of days required for Alma the elder and his people to traverse the terrain between Nephi and Zarahemla. The account includes many essential details regarding the travelers, the supplies they carried, and the accompanying animals. 1. About 145 BCE, Alma gathers believers in a place of Mormon outside the city of Nephi. 2. King Noah sends an army to destroy them. 3. Alma and his followers depart into the wilderness with their families, tents, flocks, and grains. 4. Noah's army returns having searched in vain. 5. Alma's followers include 450 men, women, and children. 6. They travel eight days and settle in the land of Helam. 7. Alma's people build a city and multiply and prosper exceedingly. 8. About 120 BCE, a Lamanite army arrives and subjects Alma's people to bondage. 9. God promises he will deliver Alma and his people from bondage. 10. Alma and his followers spend the night gathering their flocks and grain. 11. God causes a deep sleep to come upon the Lamanites. 12. Alma and his followers travel one day and camp in the valley. 13. God tells Alma to leave and he will stop the Lamanites in that valley. 14. They travel 12 days and arrive in the land of Zarahemla. 15. In the land of Zarahemla, King Mosiah receives them with joy. These verses describe the travel time from the place of Mormon to the land of Zarahemla as 21 days. The distance from Nephi to the place of Mormon is unaccounted for, perhaps adding one more day. 22 days of travel seems a reliable approximation. The question is how fast could Alma and his followers have made the entire journey? Some authors allege that the group could travel at speeds of 3 or 4 miles per hour for 10 to 12 hours a day or traverse a span of a up to a 1,000 miles in a 22-day trek. Yet, theories promoting these scenarios provide few details. Travel without animal-drawn wagons, horses to ride, or hundreds of canoes, and a handy downstream river current leading to the destination suggests that transit speeds can be estimated by estimating the travel capabilities and limitations of the group. Travelers' Demographics The first group of 450 at the place of Mormon would have likely doubled in number in the 25 years, for they did multiply and prosper exceedingly in the land of Helam. With families, including men, women, and children, some elderly and toddlers, would probably have journeyed at slower paces as indicated in the table. Babies would have been carried. The table estimates human foot travel speeds. For an adult, 2 to 4 miles an hour an adult with a pack two to three miles an hour, children across flat ground one to one and a quarter miles per hour, children hiking up elevations less than one mile an hour, toddlers and babies would be carried, the elderly healthy two to three miles an hour, elderly unhealthy unknown, disabled unknown, fleeing with armies in pursuit, With destroying armies in hot pursuit, Alma and his followers would have initially fled as quickly as possible. However, fears of being overtaken would have diminished after the second day because Noah's armies immediately returned and God stopped the Lamanites through an undisclosed means. Stamina and fitness. Undoubtedly, many of the group were used to hard physical labor of farming and living a subsistence lifestyle, but traveling for a mile or two is different from sustaining a longer migration over 10 miles a day for multiple days. The group's overall progress would have been paced by the least fit of the travelers. The young children, the elderly, the sick, and the impaired would have determined their daily progress, or they would have been carried or left behind. The need to rest and eat would slow the advancement, as would hunting for water or additional food if needed. Packing, grain, and supplies. Both groups carried their grain with them as they moved along, presumably quantities needed for the journey of an undetermined length. Without pack animals or wheeled conveyances, these burdens would have decreased travel performance. Terrain and trail conditions. Additional time would have been required if the group encountered poor trail conditions and changes in elevation. Each entered the wilderness, which was so labeled for characteristics that probably would have made travel more difficult. Weather conditions. The trekkers might have enjoyed ideal traveling conditions throughout the journey. Alternatively, snow, rain, and other inclement weather would have slowed their march, making the trail slippery and possibly more dangerous. Strong winds could have affected balance problems for individuals carrying heavy packs of grain, Extreme temperatures or humidity could demand more stops for hydration, warming, or rest. Herding flocks. Having been warned to leave the next day, Almas people in Helam gathered their flocks together even all the nighttime they were gathering the flocks together. The need to gather flocks throughout the night could be due to a large number of animals or to their scattered locations at the time or both. The specific animals are not mentioned, but turkeys are indigenous to the Americas and might serve as an example. For example, turkey farmers Marvin and Eva Lee Sumner observed that turkeys, unlike chickens, can be rounded up in flocks and driven, but they warn. One hazard of herding is the stampede. A turkey stampede sounds funny, but is no joke. As with steers, a turkey stampede is a blind rush away from danger. What danger? Who knows? A goblin scares one turkey. Every other turkey says, "I'm scared too." Off they go. Turkeys spook easiest in the moonlight, moonlit nights. All the harder that for the herder to do is to lie down and cover up. 2,000 birds each a bundle of 10 or 20 scared pounds. Flying blind in the dark can knock down almost anything if they hit if it isn't tied. Even without identifying the type and number of fauna in the flocks, several factors suggest that a sustained rapid drive might have been difficult. Too much driving pressure on the flock will result in some individuals reacting in panic and seeking an escape route by themselves. Flocks not accustomed to sustained overland travel in a specific direction from morning until evening continuously for up to three weeks would probably not have been speedy or easily driven. Group Travel Examining the average daily speeds of other traveling groups in history might help us estimate how far Alma and his followers journeyed during their 22 days in the wilderness. Driving a herd of pigs, average daily travel 11. Handcart Companies, 13.5 miles a day. Lewis and Clark, 14 miles a day. Pioneer Wagon Trains, 15 miles a day. Mormon Battalion, 15 to 20 miles a day. Zion's Camp, or the Camp of Israel, 19.1 miles a day. And 1884 Cattle Drive, about 20 miles a day. While... The data set in this table is not extensive. It supports a land travel range of 242 to 440 miles for the entire, entire trip between Nephi and Zarahemla. Also, the faster groups all benefited from one or more of the following, horses, wagons, or carts, male dominance, and a lack of flocks. Since Alma's group would have been limited in their speed by their slowest traveler, whether a child, al- elderly person, or animal, the lower number may actually be optimistic. Also, the number of miles traveled would have been more than the direct mapped distance between the two cities of perhaps 180 miles. Identifying the 180-mile distance as the crow flies between Nephi and Zarahemla is helpful because Zarahemla is described as being in the heart of the lands. But, as John L. Sorensen points out, the city of Zarahemla might be somewhat south of the land's geographic center. Doubling the Nephi to Zarahemla distance of 180 and adding additional space to the north for settlements could provide a workable estimate of the longitudinal dimension of the Promised Land. In his book, of Mormon, in his book Mormon's Map, John L. Sorensen, while examining the descriptions of movements across the Book of Mormon lands, concludes, The Promised Land, is which the Nephite history played out, in, was on an order of 500 Miles long and over 200 miles wide. According to Mormon's map, this constitutes a footprint of 100,000 square miles. Critic Earl Wunderly agrees. Sorensen's construction of a limited geography based on the clues he uses is not unreasonable. Sorensen's calculations are not unreasonable. In summary, if Equus Cabalus and river travel did not affect transportation in the Book of Mormon, the population was restricted to foot travel. Estimating foot travel distances would permit, according to the time intervals described in the text, that the interactions of the promised land inhabited extended throughout an area of approximately 100,000 square miles. Skeptics may understandably question the accuracy of any estimate, but accepting that the events occurred and that travel distances were accurately described should allow useful calculations to be made. Part 3. Possible Ramifications of a 100,000-square-mile Promised Land. Part 3 now attempts to place the 100,000-square-mile footprint of the Book of Mormon on a map of the Western Hemisphere, a territory of roughly 200 miles by 500 miles is a little smaller than Ecuador or a little bigger than the state of Wyoming. Also, it should be understood that the influence of the Promised Land inhabitants is undoubtedly spread beyond its geographic borders. Hagoth sent ships northward via the sea. Land migrations occurred to the north, and Nephite missionary efforts reveal the presence of other peoples not described in detail in the Book of Mormon. Despite these probable expansions, observers willing to accept that the primary focus of promised land activities occurred in approximately 100,000 square miles can next explore some of its possible ramifications. While none of these ideas may be new, the remainder of this article examines their apparent implications for current interpretations and future research. More than one promised land could have simultaneously existed. Over the past decades, multiple sites attempting to identify the -the on-the-ground site for the Book of Mormon Promised Land have been promoted. Plausible theories must account for four variables, location, size, shape, and topographical features. To date, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has refrained from assigning a specific physical location as the setting for the Book of Mormon. Regardless, acknowledging that the promised land inhabitants in, occupied a space of roughly 200 by 500 miles provides a visual context for placement somewhere in the Americas. Dozens of theories have been advanced different of different locations throughout the hemisphere. To be credible, the theories in the future that describe the Book of Mormon people's traversing much smaller or larger territorial territorial boundaries need to defend their chosen locations as well as the dimensions they promote. Irrespective of its actual location, an area of 200 by 500 miles occupies a very small portion of the available landmass. A 100,000 square mile area constitutes 0.6% of the western hemisphere 1.5% of South America, 1% of North America, or 51% of Central America. It appears that the Jaredites, Lehites, and Mulekites existed in a very small portion of North or South America. If they occupied Central America, they would have dominated much of the landscape, but would have left North and South America essentially unexplored. Archaeologists have shown that long-distance trading occurred throughout the Americas anciently, probably through sequential exchanges, usually of smaller, higher-valued goods, resulting in their transport across multiple societies into more distant territories. It is also true that small city-states in the past have exerted far-reaching influence and dominance through their armies and by sharing superior, locally-developed technologies. However, Living without horses and rapid means of communication would have impeded widespread contact, extended dominion, or far-reaching influence. The prophets who engraved on the Nephite plates consistently related a delimited non-hemispheric geographic zone where the events took place. They describe only local wars between cities that could be marched to in a matter of days. While Book of Mormon peoples undoubtedly possess some awareness of other populations outside their promised land, as far as the text is concerned, incidents occurring just a few hundred miles away transpired without their overall concern. In light of the geographic limitations of the Book of Mormon world... A 100,000 square mile promised land admits the possibility of other peoples in their own promised lands being led to the Americas by God besides the Lehiites, Mulekites, and Jaredites. Several passages seem to support this possibility. Lehi instructed, The Lord has covenanted this land unto me and to my children forever and also all those who should be led out of other countries by the hand of the Lord. Concerning the lost tribe Tribes of Israel, Nephi recorded, the more part of all the tribes have been led away, and they are scattered to and fro upon the isles of the sea. And then Nephi quotes the Lord For I have commanded all men, both in the east and in the west, and in the north and in the south, and in the isles of the sea, that they shall write the words which I shall speak unto them. I shall speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write. And I shall also speak unto the nations of the earth, and they shall write the only known records today of those of the Lehites and the Palestinian Israelites. When speaking to the Nephites, Christ related, I have other sheep which are not of this land, neither of the land of Jerusalem, but I have received a commandment of the Father that I shall go unto them and that they shall hear my voice and shall be numbered among my sheep. Whether Jesus considered the Nephite land To be similar in size to the land of Jerusalem or much larger is unclear. The whole of ancient Israel spanned about a thousand square miles. Still, even if land meant ten times that size, there would have been plenty of space for some of Christ's other sheep to have existed elsewhere on the American continents unknown to Book of Mormon scribes. Perhaps in past millennia, God led members of the House of Israel to the heartland of North America, another group to present-day Peru, and still others to Mesoamerica or the Mexican Baja, with the Book of Mormon describing only one of these groups. If such groups had been divinely guided, it is conceivable that each migration party would have remained unaware of the other, especially if believers in each group were eventually destroyed by unbelievers. Likewise, As remnants of the House of Israel, each group would have infused additional blood of God's chosen people among the inhabitants of the American continents. Two Book of Mormon promised lands, one limited and the other hemispheric. Independent of the observation that multiple promised lands might have simultaneously existed in the Americas, is the realization that the Book of Mormon refers to two promised lands of differing sizes. Besides the 100,000 square miles promised land, a continental or hemispheric version is alluded to in Nephi's visionary view of Columbus as he went forth upon the waters even unto the seed of my brethren who were in the promised land. Since Columbus's multiple voyages ended in the Caribbean islands and along the coast of the Gulf of Mexico, they spanned more than 100,000 square miles. Likewise, his landings do not correlate to the topography described by the Book of Mormon settlers. Nephi also saw how European Gentiles would be led to the land that the Lord God had covenanted with my father that his seed should have for a land of their inheritance. There the gold plates would be hit up to come forth unto the Gentiles, which translation and publication occurred in upstate New York, thousands of miles from Columbus's promised land contacts. While the Book of Mormon does not define the specific borders of the larger promised land, Joseph Smith clarified, The Book of Mormon is a record of the forefather of our western tribes of Indians. By it, we learn that our western tribes of Indians are descendants from the Joseph which was sold into Egypt, and that the land of America is a promised land unto them. By land of America, he later explained he meant the combined areas of North and South American continents. So it appears that the narratives of the Jaredites, Lehites, and Mulekites occurred in what might be called the limited promised land of about 100,000 square miles. This area was actually part of what might be called the Hemispheric Promised Land, which comprised 16,400,000 square miles of the whole of the Western Hemisphere. This differentiation is important because a few decades after the death of the last Nephite believer, about 500 CE, three things occurred. The Nephite religious teachings that included a 100,000 square mile promised land disappear from the collective memory of the remaining inhabitants of the territory. Two, for all practical purposes, the limited promised land ceased to exist. This is attested to by the fact that we do not know its geographic location today. Three, a hemispheric promised land would dominate modern references without differentiating it from the Book of Mormon limited promised land. For example... Joseph Smith taught Zion to be built upon this continent, for this is a promised land to the tribe of Joseph, and the whole of North and South America is Zion. In summary, two Book of Mormon promised lands of differing sizes are mentioned, a limited promised land where the Book of Mormon narrative occurred with the Jaredites, Lehites, and Mulekites. Realistically, it ceased to exist when it faded from the recollections of the residents in that area sometime after 421 CE. References after that time imply a hemispheric promised land. Evolving definitions from original Lamanites to modern Lamanites. Recognizing the existence of two promised lands of differing sizes affects the definitions of Lamanites today. Technically, the first Lamanites in the promised land would have been Laman, and his offspring. But that definition, if ever considered by any of the Lehites, was short-lived. Tracing the evolution of the term throughout the rest of the Book of Mormon and beyond provides insights regarding the expected relationship between Native Americans and the Book of Mormon Lamanites. 570 to 87 BCE. Ideological differences separate Lamanites and Nephites. About 507 70 BCE Nephi first used the term Lamanite to describe Laman and his followers who tried to destroy Nephi and his people. A few years later, Nephi's brother Jacob further clarified the dichotomy. I shall call the Lamanites that's I shall call them Lamanites that seek to destroy the people of Nephi and those who are friendly to Nephi I shall call Nephites. Jumping ahead to 87 BCE, the Book of Mormon writers continued to divide Nephites and Lamanites based upon their beliefs, not bloodlines. Whosoever suffereth himself to be led away by the Lamanites was called under that head. Those living outside the promised land are not acknowledged in the descriptions. 36 CE. No manner of ites. After the coming of Christ, about 36 CE, the Book of Mormon describes how the promised land inhabitants united to create a society that was without Lamanites nor any manner of ites, but they were all one in the children of Christ. The geographic boundaries of the children of Christ during the next two centuries are not specified, but are probably extended to the limits of the knowledge of the prophet scribes chronicling those years probably the borders of a 100,000-square-mile promised land. Consistent with previous Nephite accounts, indigenous peoples living beyond the believer's settlements were left unidentified in the narrative. 231 CE, they who rejected the gospel are Lamanites. By 185 CE, a small part of the people who had revolted from the church took upon them the name of Lamanites. The division is described as social-religious, and unrelated to genetics, race, or ethnicity. The rivalry continued until by 231 CE, there was a great division among the people. And it came to pass that in that year there arose a people who were called the Nephites, and they were the true believers of Christ. And it came to pass that they who rejected the gospel were called Lamanites. By labeling all unbelievers as Lamanites, indigenous inhabitants, inhabitants inside and outside the promised land were included because of their ignorance of Christ. 400-421 to 421 CE Final Conflict Between Nephites and Lamanites The Nephite-Lamanite struggle expanded throughout the 3rd and 4th centuries until armed combat resulted in the annihilation of all Nephite believers. As discussed above, this final conflict was not between the literal descendants of Nephi and the literal descendants of Laman. It was not between the righteous and the wicked. It was not between people of a light-colored skin and people with dark-colored skin. The final Nephite-Lamanite conflict was a civil war between two unrighteous populations with a common religious tradition introduced by Christ and, in 36 CE. Their primary difference was that one arose as an anti-Christian movement around 185 CE and the other progressively rejected Christ and the prophets over the next two centuries. Mormon described how by 260 CE the people who were called the people of Nephi began to be proud in their hearts because of their exceeding riches and become vain-like unto their brethren the Lamanites. And just a few decades after that, both the people of Nephi and the Lamanites had become exceedingly wicked, one like unto another. As Armand Moss observed, about 400 CE, the Nephite and Lamanite antagonists were distinguished only by their different, differential spiritual condition, rather than by skin color or other racial characteristics. Elizabeth Fenton agrees the Lamanite story begins, but does not end, with racial delineation. In the opening chapters of the Book of Mormon, before Nephites and Lamanites existed, Nephi describes the final battle and vision. I beheld that the seed of my brethren did overpower the people of my seed. Seed, in this application, apparently refers to those who followed a specific religious tradition, regardless of race or ethnicity. For example... Isaiah wrote of Christ, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Abraham was told, As many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name, and shall be accounted thy seed, and shall rise up and bless thee as their father. Consistent with his vision, Nephi's seed, later collectively called Nephites, were those who believed the teachings about Christ and were destroyed by the seed of Nephi's brethren, later collectively called Lamanites, who did not. The division was nearly always ideological, not biological or genealogical. It is unfortunate that the first dissenters circa 185 CE chose the name Lamanites instead of something like Republicans, Democrats, Red Sox, or Rotarians, Adopting the same name as the Lamanites with ethnic origins of the first 600 years of the Book of Mormon has generated ongoing confusion among some readers who connect them with the social-religious Lamanites of the last 400 years. Commonly, authors focus on the Lamanites of the first half of the Book of Mormon, cursed, dark, and racialized, seemingly unaware that the Lamanites of the second half are simply apostates from the Christian religions with an adopted designation, having dissented earlier than the Nephites. Post 21 CE, whosoever remaineth are Lamanites. Regarding the victors in the ultimate conflict between the Nephites and Lamanites, Alma the younger prophesied, And when the great day cometh, behold, the time very soon cometh that those who are now or the seed of those who are now numbered among the people of Nephi shall no more be numbered among the people of Nephi but whosoever remaineth and is not destroyed in that great and dreadful day shall be numbered among the Lamanites and shall become like unto them all save it be a few who shall be called the disciples of the Lord and them shall the Lamanites pursue and even until they shall become extinct. As far as the Book of Mormon is concerned, the final battle resulted in the extinction of the Nephites and whosoever remaineth throughout the land was numbered among the Lamanites. Whether Alma or other prophet scribes fully understood the vastness of that land the Lamanites would occupy under such declarations is unclear. For them, whether the Nephites were extinct in a hundred thousand square mile promised land, or a 16.4 million square mile promised land, was unimportant. As time passed, the unremembering of the original promised land left the remaining Lamanites with only one promised land to inhabit, the entire American continent from the tip of Argentina to northern Canada. The observation that the Book of Mormon describes a changing definition of Lamanites is not new, but... Understanding how the limited size of the promised land affects that definition could have implications for those recognized as Lamanites today. Zelf and Central American Lamanites. Two examples from Joseph Smith's life demonstrate his apparent belief that Lamanites could be found throughout the American continents. While traveling with Zion's camp, Joseph identified bones found in Pike County, Illinois in 1834 as bones of a Lamanite named Zelf. Although conflicting accounts exist regarding Joseph's exact de- description, that he could attribute the human remains to a Book of Mormon prophet people is unsurprising. Similarly, in 1841, Smith received a copy of John Lloyd Stevens' Incidents of Travel in Central America, Chiapas and Yucatan, from John Bernheisel. Later that year, he wrote Bernheisel, I have read the volume with the greatest interest and pleasure and declare many things that are of great importance to this generation and corresponds with and supports the testimony of the Book of Mormon. That The following year, the Times and Seasons referenced John Stevens' volume saying they produce proof of the Lamanites and Nephites, even though they describe archaeological remains in Mesoamerica. Without the benefit of knowing where the Book of Mormon people specifically played out their narratives, the entirety of Americas became Lamanite territory. Joseph Smith apparently viewed ancient ruins as evidence of the Lamanites and the then extinct Nephites. This view is generally continued today without necessarily analyzing the exact relationship between the original Lamanites and modern Lamanites. Distances could impede efforts to validate Book of Mormon peoples. The limited geography of the Book of Mormon Promised Land and its unknown location affect all linguistic field studies, archaeological digs, and genetic samplings today that seek to identify scientific evidence of the migrations of the Jaredites, Lehites, or Mulekites. The simple reality is that the research efforts could be hundreds or thousands of miles away from the original promised land. Anthropological evidence of the promised land peoples would undoubtedly have diffused outside of the confines of the original area. Yet, without the horse or other forms of rapid transit to support long-standing sequential exchanges, detecting their impact today on language, DNA, or archaeology just a few hundred miles away might be hampered. Concentrated Native American Losses at the Original Promised Land Location Researchers seeking to document the existence of the Book of Mormon peoples must confront the possibility that the Promised Land residents experienced devastating losses after 400 CE. Over the past millennia, multiple territories throughout the Americas have experienced localized losses of indigenous inhabitants. Some of these involved areas over 100,000 square miles. If such localities overlapped or encompassed the original promised land, significant genetic and linguistic losses of the Book of Mormon populations would have been unavoidable. Mayan decline 700 to 900 CE. An example of a localized population loss is the Mayan nation. LIDAR uses laser pulsations to produce high-definition scans that highlight smaller features covered by dense rainforest canopy. In 2016, scientists used LIDAR to scan more than 800 square miles along the border of Guatemala and the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, identifying 61,480 structures. Extrapolation of this settlement density to the entire 95,000 square miles, square kilometers, or 37,000 square miles, of the central lowlands produces a population range of 7 to 11 million during the late classic period, which is six to 900 CE. These estimates are based on both the number of structures revealed by LiDAR data and on estimated amounts of land that may have been used for agriculture, taking into consideration the traditional farming practices of the area, average yields, and basic caloric requirements. The estimate is somewhat conservative, falling within a range of others made for this area and time period. Ground exploration supports that these numbers could be low. Ben Guarino explains, for all its power, LIDAR cannot supplant old-fashioned archaeology. For 8% of the survey area, the archaeologists confirmed the LIDAR data with boots-on-the-ground visits. This ground-truthing suggests that the LIDAR analysis was conservative. They found the predicted structures and then some. As a sidebar observation, the observations identified include individual defensive features. According to the primary researchers, bridges, ditches, ramparts, stone walls, and terraces were constructed as components of a built defensive systems. These combined with natural defenses to protect defended areas. There were five types of built defensive systems, landscaped, ditch and rampart, hilltop ditch and rampart, Contoured Terrace, Standalone Rampart, and Stone Wall. These discoveries are consistent with some of the fortifications described in the Book of Mormon. Archaeologists have demonstrated that the Mayan Empire extended beyond the central low line lands, exp- occupying over 100,000 square miles. Surface expeditions have revealed that most of the buildings and edifices are currently uninhabited and overgrown with local foliage. If the promised land was initially located in this area, and this is only an example, and then a few centuries after the Nephi extinction, the area was devastated and vacated, the primary locus of the Book of Mormon people's genetic and linguistic elements would have been lost. 1492 CE. European explorers encounter millions of indigenous populations. The earliest European adventures to arrive in the Americas after 1492 CE encountered a large native population that was distributed over massive geographic expanse from the Arctic regions of the North America through the Amazonian forests of Brazil to the bleak landscapes of Tierra del Fuego, South America. Anthropologists have debated for decades the precise number of these Native Americans. A variety of scientific methods have been applied to provide accurate estimation. The result ranged from 8.4 million to 112 million indigenous Americans. A 1997 article, How Many People Were Here Before Columbus, summarizes. No one, in fact, knows how many people lived anywhere in those days except for perhaps a city or two in Europe. The first national consensus Occurred centuries later, 1749 in Sweden, 1790 in the fledgling United States, 1801 in France and Britain. It was 1953 when China took a complete count. A recent effort by geographer William Denevan to reconcile the many conflicting estimates by using the best findings of the various scholars concludes that 54 million people inhabited the Americas in 1492. Svetin Todorov, author of The Conquest of America, estimates a higher population. In 1500, the world population is approximately 400 million, of whom 80 million inhabit the Americas. By the middle of the 16th century, out of these 80 million, there remain 10 million still living. 1500 CE, European diseases decimate Amerindian populations. Regardless of the actual population numbers, virtually all scholars agree that upon the arrival of the Europeans in 1492, diseases and armed conflict ravaged the indigenous inhabitants. There is little doubt about the massive and rapid drop in the population in the 16th century, writes William Denovan. The discovery of America was followed by possibly the greatest demographic disaster in the history of the world. Further, isolation such as that of the American Indians from the old world rendered populations very susceptible to catastrophic epidemics from diseases introduced from overseas. The major killers were smallpox, measles, whooping cough, chickenpox, bubonic plague, typhus, malaria, diphtheria, amoebic dysentery, influenza, and a variety of helminthic infections. George Milner and George Champlett agree that the loss of life following the introduction of Old World diseases among the Eastern North American population was horrific and devastating to the Native societies. One study reported the Native American populations declined by 87% following European decolonization. As British historian Michael H. Crawford further explains, English settlements may not have been possible in the Americas had disease imports not paved the way. Without the effects of small part, smallpox, Francisco Pizarro would probably not have succeeded in his conquest of the Inca Empire in Peru. The first smallpox epidemic started in Veracruz, Mexico during Cortez's first contact in 1519. This disease spread into Guatemala and then into what is now northern Peru in 1524-26. The Inca ruler and his entourage, including the only legitimate heir, all contracted smallpox and died. The result of their demise was a division of the empire between rivals, thus lessening Inca resolve and facilitating the conquest of the empire. How many Amerindians died during the first century after Columbus? The estimates of death percentages ranges from a low of 75 to a high of 95%. Scholars agree that the loss of life during this period was cataclysmic, as William M. Denovan acknowledges, Despite recent population increases, most Indian cultures have become extinct, or nearly so. Post-1600 CE, continued indigenous losses. The early epidemics, circa 1600 CE, that leveled Amerindian populations were just the beginning. Subsequent waves of smallpox and other diseases continued to devastate Native Americans by the thousands. Adam Hodge Describes a death encountered around 1780. The mid 19th century artist George Catlin once observed that smallpox was the dread destroyer of the Indian race. Repeated epidemics produced a staggering death toll. Among those epidemics was one that swept the great plains of North America for 18 months, from 1780 to 1782, killing half or more of the region's native population. The Mandans, Hidatsis and Archeris, who lived in the semi-seditary villages on the northern plains, lost approximately 70 to 80 percent of their populations. The crowded, stationary nature of their large villages led to rapid smallpox diffusion and high human mortality. Multiple other epidemics and endemics have been documented throughout North and South America well into the 19th century, and examining the epidemic of 1830 to 33, it was determined that malaria was the killer of three-fourths of Native Americans that then inhabiting the Sacramento and northern San Joaquin valleys and the lower Columbian river banks. These observations illustrate how residents of the limited-sized promised land might risk annihilation in the wake of even a single disease outbreak or extended localized armed conflict. Archaeological research supports that such concentrated population losses occurred at multiple locations throughout North and South America, even before the arrival of the Europeans. Their influx also introduced additional waves of total territorial destruction. Obliteration of the original region of Book of Mormon linguistics and genetics would not have completely eliminated their existence from the continents, but it could impede their subsequent detection by geneticists, anthropologists, and archaeologists archaeologists today. All Native Americans as remnant of the House of Israel. A limited promised land geography affects expectations regarding the potential relationship of Native Americans today to the original Lamanites. Joseph Smith described on the title page of the Book of Mormon as a literal translation taken from the last leaf on the left-hand side of the collection of the Book of Plates. The title page states that the Lamanites are a remnant of the House of Israel. As discussed above, authentic genealogical ties to the House of Israel would be predicted to be geographically focused in the area of the original location of the promised land. Since that location is unknown, and since Joseph Smith's revelations refer to all Native Americans as Lamanites, God seems willing to co-opt all Amerindians into the house of Israel regardless of their locations. This grouping assures that those with literal connections receive the promised blessings in the last days. That the lineage of Israel would be distributed throughout the world was scripturally predicted. That the Lord shall scatter thee among all people from one end of the earth even unto the other. Nephi too foretold this dispersion throughout the world. It appears that the house of Israel sooner or later will be scattered upon all the face of the earth and among all nations. It seems that as the tribes of Israel became scattered, they became salt to season the peoples in the areas where they settled. The primary covenant blessing promised to the house of Israel in the latter days is that they will be gathered. Christ told the Nephites, I will gather them in from the four quarters of the earth. And then I will fulfill which the Father has made unto the covenant which the Father has made unto all the people of the house of Israel. I shall gather in from the long dispersions my people, O house of Israel. While such promises may suggest that only a particular lineage will be gathered, the Book of Mormon teaches that God is mindful of every people, whatsoever land they may be in, and that all are alike unto God. God also promises that he will gather his lambs, his sheep, and his elect. I will gather mine elect from the four quarters of the earth, even as many as will believe in me and hearken unto my voice. None of these analogies specify genealogy. Likewise, Paul explained, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Belief, not lineage, ultimately governs those who are gathered. Jesus Christ manifesteth himself unto those who believe in him by the power of the Holy Ghost. Yea, yea, unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, working mighty miracles, signs, and wonders among the children of men according to their faith. Isaiah wrote, I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. It might be like a shepherd who has sheep that wander into the wilderness, When the shepherd searches to find it, he encounters many wild sheep. Rather than focusing only on gathering his own sheep, he invites all the sheep to follow his voice, to enjoy his pasture, and the subsequent blessings of his constant presence and care. While some Native Americans today, referred to as Lamanites in modern scripture, may not possess genetic connections to the house of Israel, God's promise to them are not diminished. Through obedience, they and all nations may be may join the gathered house of Israel, defined as those who have loved me and kept my commandments. Nothing is lost as Christ offers to gather us as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, <clears throat> if ye will repent and return unto me with full purpose of heart. Conclusions Observers who accept the conclusion— That the Book of Mormon saga transpired in a limited geographic area, perhaps less than 1% of the Western Hemisphere, can contemplate some of the possible ramifications. First, more than one remnant of the House of Israel might have been led to the Americas without the Book of Mormon prophets knowing of their existence. Second, evidence of the existence of the Jaredites, Lehites, and Mulekites may be much more difficult to locate than initially thought because the researchers might be looking in the wrong places or the primary concentration of organic evidence may have been lost. Third, only a subset of Native Americans living in an unknown location today would be expected to have genetic or linguistic ties to the Lamanites. From from a Book of Mormon standpoint, all other Amerindians have been numbered with the Lamanites due to their presence in the Americas at the time of the Restoration, 1830s and beyond. And fourth, as missionary work proceeds, direct ties to the original Book of Mormon peoples are less important as salvific blessings are extended to all. Author's note, I would like to thank Brant Gardner, Ugo Perigo, and Godfrey Ellis, and the anonymous reviewers for their feedback and excellent suggestions on earlier drafts of this article. This has been a recording of the article Published in the Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Brian C. Hales. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its websites are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at the journal InterpreterFoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation along with a wide array of additional resources can be found at InterpreterFoundation.org.